Hey there, friend. This is Stephanie Krevins, and you are listening to the Mid-Level Leaders Hot Mess Hotline, where we share real conversations with CEOs and top-level executives and lessons that they've learned the hard way through their careers so that you, as an ambitious learner who wants to one day be someone who is leading with strategy and influence and innovation, you can learn from their lessons now and have those in your back pocket and frankly, put them into practice as soon as this episode is over. So today is a first ever on our podcast. We have two guests with one conversation all at the same time. It is so exciting to bring this opportunity to you. Sean Murray is bringing a story from the 80s to life and the lessons learned in a new way. And his new book is out now. It is called If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. Sean is the founder and CEO of Real Time Performance and has over 20 years of experience in leadership and organizational development. Currently, he helps organizations unleash the human factors that drive business business success. So now you know why we're friends. We're both doing the same great work with groups across the country. He has facilitated programs in leadership, inclusion, decision-making, team building, and innovation for some really big names like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, FedEx, Nordstrom, all the good places. Sean is bringing the story to life of Doug Beal and this winning, this gold medal winning Olympic team. Doug is now the former executive director of USA Volleyball, serving in that role from 2005 to 2016. Prior to that, he really served in a ton of different roles with USA Volleyball, including two stints as the head coach for the men's national team, including from 1976 to that fateful day in 1984 that we're going to talk about in a minute. And that was his first gold medal. And then he came back in 97 to 2004. He's also coached professionally in Italy and served as the head coach for Ohio State University, or as I should say, the Ohio State University, I know better, and Bowling Green. He was also a player on the national team from 1970 to 1976. So this man knows volleyball. This man knows executive leadership. And we're going to dig into a conversation about how he and several other key team members in the early 80s to 1984 brought this group of talented individuals together to truly form a team to do something very, very special. Let's dig into this conversation, my friend. All right, my Gen X friends, we have some amazing special guests with us today, Doug Beal and Sean Murray. And we are going to talk about this historical event and something that really changed the future of so many people in what seemed like one game. And it wasn't just one game. And it's based off this new book by Sean Murray, called If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. So spoiler alert, in the book, 1984, the men's volleyball team representing the US of A won the gold. They were the underdogs by a long shot, but because of their preparation, they came together in a way that nobody expected to take it all. To win the gold in the Olympics is an amazing feat. But Sean is bringing to life Doug's story, the team's story, the other team, the other folks that were part of their success. He's bringing that to life in 2022. And Sean, I want to know from you, 
Why this book? Why now? Well, Stephanie, uh, the book is really a journey to uh, my goal in writing the book was really to tell a story that would allow readers to learn about leadership and about teamwork and team building. And, you know, when I set out to write a book four or five years ago, I, I wanted to write a book about a team. I didn't know what team I wanted to write about, but I wanted to write a book about uh, a team that would offer some lessons on, on how to lead and how to be good teammates. And, I, and the reason I wanted a, a story is, a, is human memory is, is story-based. People learn through stories. And Absolutely. people connect emotionally to stories. And I didn't just want to write a book about, you know, here's uh, Sean Murray's five elements to building a great team. I, I wanted to tell the real story of a real team. And I, I thought about different sports teams and dynasties. I thought about teams in business, you know, from Amazon or from Google, or, and I, I even thought about exploration like Shackleton and, and the moon landing. And, and I just, it occurred to me, there's a team right underneath my nose, um, a team that I had a personal connection to that had one goal, which is the team you just mentioned, the 1984 USA men's volleyball team. And my father was one of two team psychologists that helped Doug Beal, the head coach and his coaching staff and helped the players with the, what I call the team dynamics or the culture, you know, yeah. the internal motivations, the goal setting, how they work together. And uh, so I knew a little bit about this team. I was there in 1984 when they won gold at the Los Angeles Olympics. I was 13 years old. Obviously, I looked up to this team. Uh, literally, they were 6'3", six, 6'4", six, six, <laughs> I was uh, four foot five or something. But, you know, they were just larger than life in a lot of ways in my memory and, and very inspiring. So I called up Doug Beal one day and he happened to be close to retiring from USA Volleyball, being the executive director. And I said, Doug, I'd like to write a story about this team. And uh, he said, are you sure you want to do that? That's kind of a big thing. <laughs> maybe you want to write an article. Um, and uh, maybe I should have taken you up on the article, Doug. But um, anyway, I said, no, I want to write the book. And so he said, okay, I'm going to have more time. And, and he introduced me to a number of the players. Uh, I was very lucky that his partner and the assistant coach, Bill Neville, lived lives in Seattle and I live in Seattle and that was a great connection. And I just started interviewing the teams. And the more I learned about this team, Stephanie, the more amazed I was about their story. And um, the one thing I knew about their story that kind of intrigued me to write the book was they, they had gone on a, what's called an outward bound experience um, before the Olympics. They had, they did a three week outward bound course through the mountains of Utah in the middle of winter. And I didn't know much more about that, but I knew through my father's connection that it happened. And, uh, and that also just added another little mystery to, okay, well, what, what was it about this team? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Doug, I'd love to hear from you. Oh gosh. So many questions. Where do I start? Uh, so you were the head coach, you were the mastermind behind all of this. And I pulled a quote out of really the middle of the book, but um, to me, I feel like this sets the stage for for why you did what you did, why the psychologists did what they did. And it said, and the quote is from you, it became obvious that we needed to learn to rely on each other, to develop cohesiveness and relationships that would lend themselves to team play. Our team had broken down too many times in stressful situations, had allowed too many leads to get away. If that occurred in the Olympics, it would be ruinous. 
set 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 the stage for us for what the team was like during that training period leading up to the Olympics when you're like, oh my gosh, they're not going to make it. What, what were you seeing from them? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for reminding me of that, of that quote. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And Sean, I thought, I thought, gosh, this 13 year old must've been taking notes uh, during the 84 game and planning to write this book all along. Now, let me go back a little bit and just set the stage from my perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And what I think is, is kind of interesting about this team is that it's, it was um, in some respects, maybe many respects, sort of an anomaly to the history of USA volleyball before that 84 game. And, and we had come, we being USA volleyball and sort of the culture and the history of the sport from a place of very little uh, success in the sense of this is a sport that was invented in the United States. And then we sort of forgot about it. And mm. so by the time the 84 games rolled around, the U S men had not qualified for an Olympic games, not even to participate wow. since 1968. And so a lot of things came together. I, I think fortunately for us at the right time, a really iconic group of players. Uh, came out of different colleges and were um, available to the national team to be able to build this team starting, honestly, probably in 1978 or 79, something like that. And it, it takes time for any team sport to build a really successful team. And a lot of those players uh, have gone on to quite, I think, remarkable careers uh, in the sport, outside of the sport. Um, and some of them are probably still more well-known 30, 40 years, 50 years after that Olympics than a lot of the more current players for any number of reasons. So as a, as a little background, I, I think that's important to understand. And, and then, you know, for me, uh, the people I worked with during that four or five year period leading up to 84 and, and very much including Sean's father, Don helped us uh, do some things that I think are, were really unusual in that era, but looking back on it, I, I think are pretty significant in terms of maybe drawing some lessons and, and drawing some uh, comparisons to what, can work to create um, an optimally performing team. And I think, I think sometimes we make too much of, of some group or team success. I, I, that's sort of for others to sort of decide. I, I'm not sure I'm the best at, at saying that or not saying that or drawing that conclusion. But I don't know, we took this group of really talented people who had very different backgrounds. And during a couple of seasons, we weren't progressing the way uh, I and and the other staff thought we should. Mm -hmm. And so as we got closer and closer to the 84 games, I think we were willing to take more and more chances and be more creative and think more outside the box, which is a pretty common term to use, I I think. Um, 
sort of after the fact. I'm not sure it's a great term to use before the fact. How are we going to think outside the box? Let's do something really crazy and, and ridiculous. <laughs> creative. Um, and, and Sean mentioned this outward bound experience, which sometimes I think it's, it's uh, in a sense, been blown out of proportion because it was one part of thinking outside the box and how, mm. how, to, how to create a really efficient, well-functioning, high-performing group team. But certainly for me, and, and I think for the other staff, it was pretty critical. It was pretty important. So also a part of that culture and history of volleyball at that time was players who came from different parts of the country rarely interacted. So if you were from the Midwest or you were from the West Coast, you didn't see those other players very much. So that's changed dramatically as the sport has grown in an enormous way. Mm-hmm. Uh, volleyball is, is in such a different place right now than it was back in the 70s and 80s in a really good way. But back then, the history of our national team was mostly a California history. And so we were trying to not consciously change that, but some of the better players were not from California and wound up being on the team, came from a totally different collegiate background, a totally different lifestyle background, a totally different mindset background. And how do you how do you get them to work together, to respect each other, to acknowledge the, the, the role that they play, I think is directly part of leadership, team performance, high performing groups, et cetera. So that's sort of my background. And um, can I ask you a quick question? But what I heard in there was you brought together talented individual individuals, was there an assumption on y'all's part that a group of talented individuals would more easily become a high-performing, talented team because of the individual players? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's not always a great assumption, but we did. Yeah. We, um, I think from the very first day that, uh, I, I started coaching this group and probably even a year or two before that, we, we knew we had a special group of talented players. Um, and you could almost say that about any national team in any sport. I mean, if you get to the national team level, you have to be good and you've already achieved at a high level and you've already uh, accomplished remarkable things in your sport. I, I don't care what the sport is. And in a team setting, there's that. And then how do they fit together? How does that puzzle work? Mm-hmm. Um, because all those players are all Americans. All those players have won national championships. All those players have been the star of their teams in college or, or high school or wherever the, the background came from. And they're not all going to be in that role on the national team when they're playing for USA or et cetera. And, yeah. and so they're going to have to, they're going to have to accept different roles and they're going to have to acknowledge and and be willing to understand that that role is going to change. And so that was, I think, really difficult for us and, and a big part of the process. And Outward Bound, again, that, that Sean mentioned, which is certainly interesting to talk about, was a direct activity to help us get over that process or get through that process. 
Yes. You brought together all these rock stars, all these A students, just to use different metaphors here, where they're all used to being the shining example. They're used to having their name at the top. They're used to being praised the most. And now they're in a group of truly their peers, probably for one of the first times in their life. That's a hard hit on people's ego. I know I've certainly felt that at multiple times in my life and it kind of, it really sucks. (laughs) Like it really sucks. Yeah. What it, it can be really hard. Absolutely. So. Yeah. What, what was, and so back to kind of the opening question, but, and I understanding that the outward bound experience and Sean can tell us about that more in just a second. It was one piece of many to break down the individuals in order to form a team, which is right. a group of people that is responsible for shared results, not just a group of people individually happen to all work together or all have the head coach or all have the same manager to translate that into the workplace. What were you seeing from a very practical level that told you these guys are not coming together as a cohesive unit? What were the behaviors? Yeah, uh, lots of things. So some clicks developed on the team, which is pretty standard, I think, on most team sports, uh, but not generally very positive. And we weren't winning at the level that we thought we needed to win to, uh, to compete. And I think you have to go back a little, a little bit. So one of the things a group, a team has to do is what are our objectives? What are we trying to accomplish here? What's our goal? And so you go through some kind of a goal setting uh, process. And we did that many times. And it's really easy for teams, I think, to say, gee, our goal is we want to win. But really, you want to win a gold medal? Do you have any idea what's involved in doing that? The United States has never won a medal, forget about a gold medal, in any international competition, let alone the Olympic Games. And so the words don't necessarily have much meaning in that context. And so a lot of times we talk about what trajectory is this group on? Is it, is it on the trajectory going up? Is it flat? Are we going down? Are there bumps in the road, et cetera? So our trajectory was pretty haphazard, frankly. Occasionally, we'd win a, an interesting match, or we'd uh, maybe even place in an international tournament, but the trajectory wasn't actually going in the right direction. And we had uh, a world championships event two years, essentially two years before the Olympics, and a pretty disappointing result, frankly. Uh, 13th place finishing 13th place at a world championship two years before the Olympics isn't exactly uh, confidence building that we're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the outward bound, which was an, an enormous, um, I like to call it a shared life experience. Mm-hmm. We changed a lot of things about how we played the game. And, you know, for a business or any other group, you know, that's akin to changing, I don't know, your overall sales strategy, or it's akin to changing the, the whole management structure or how you define your company. And it, for some players, it dramatically increased their role. And for other players, it dramatically decreased their role. Mm-hmm. And gosh, that's, that's part of a team, but it's, it's a really... Uh, what's the right term, challenging, difficult process to deal with individually to make players understand their role, uh, accept their role, and perform to that role. 
And mm-hmm. I think sometimes sometimes we forget about the performing to it. And for a sports team, we get an opportunity to integrate that role every day in practice. Are we using that player as we've defined them in that role in practice? Are we preparing them to be the best they can be in that role? And and communicating it is challenging enough. Getting a player to understand it, to you know, regurgitate it is challenging. And then to to train it and to really live it, I think is is equally challenging. And we did, you know, we did a lot of that. I I think how we trained, how we played the game, the things we were willing to do to uh, to try to achieve our objectives uh, and goals were outside the box. And uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm enormously proud, obviously, of, of the group and the team. You're, I mean, you're just spot on, right? You have to you have to practice for the role that you are to serve during the game. And a lot of elite level athletes and high performers in any sphere of life say that your practice must mimic the game because you're not just going to magically step up in the game and perform like like you should to win the gold medal, to win the competition, to win the contract or the proposal. If you've been, if your practice has not been up to par, Sean, I want to focus on the outward bound experience for a moment. This, this was part of your dad's role in bringing this to life as a sports psychologist. And I pulled this quote of the, out of the book from one of the players, uh, last name Sunderland. Um, and he says, we thought they were out of their minds. So this is from the player's perspective when they got invited to this outward bound thing. And I'd love for you to describe what this is and a very high level, like what happened during this experience, because taking a bunch of volleyball players who lived in those tiny, tiny shorts on the, on the beaches of California into the mountains with, I can't even imagine how much gear, like they're like, what the hell does this have to do with volleyball? And so one of the players specifically said, we thought they were out of their minds. We as a team didn't sense we had any big issues. We didn't think, gosh, we're a really screwed up group. There were guys on the team that hung out guys that didn't like, you know, the click that Doug mentioned some were closer than others but they just didn't see the problem. It seems they didn't acknowledge the depth of their dysfunction and they couldn't accept that something as weird and out of the box as outward bound could be part of the training. And really the reason that this struck me as a quote is because so many of the cultures that I go into, they know something is off, but they can't name it. They want it to be different, but they don't know what it is but they can't acknowledge the depths of their dysfunction. I was like, oh, the same thing happens with the folks that I get to work with. (laughs) So Sean, bring to life for us, why in the heck mountain, taking folks to mountains and hiking and teaching them how to navigate with some simple tools was going to make them a stronger volleyball team. Well, okay, a couple a couple of things about <clears throat> this situation. I mean, and one just to talk about the the different perspectives of the players versus the coaches versus mm-hmm. the psychologists. Yeah, I think the players were were very close to very close to it. Maybe just didn't see some of the dysfunction that the coaches were seeing. Uh, you know, these are players that are used to getting better at volleyball by practicing volleyball and you know improving their response time, getting better at blocking, getting better at passing. 
volleyball is a very, very team oriented sport. The, I'm, I'm not a volleyball expert like, like Doug and others that I interviewed in the book, but the more I learned about volleyball and writing this book, the more I realized how much of a team sport it really is. You can't go one-on-one in volleyball. One of the players broke that down for me a couple of times in describing how important it is. There's three passes that usually happen and you have to go back and forth between players. You can't just take it yourself. Uh, players rotate. Uh, it's, it's, there's, there's just a lot to it that makes it, a, some people say it's the most team-oriented sport. I don't want to get involved in that argument because people bring up soccer and other things, but to say it's team-oriented, I think everyone can agree. Yeah. Um, and, and so the coaches, I think, saw the importance, and the team psychologists certainly did. My father, Don Murray, and his partner, Chuck Johnson, the importance of how people react when there's a problem on a mistake is made. You know, how do you recover? Do you point fingers? Do you give someone a dirty look? Do you uh, pat them on the back and say, we can do this? You know, let's get back at it. The culture and how they treat each other, uh, the level of respect for each other, all these plays play a role. And when we're talking about the elite level that this team was at, you know, going up against the powerhouses of the world at the time, like the Soviet Union and uh, Japan and Brazil and Hungary and Poland and these countries, they all have great talent. They're all incredibly high jumpers and have physical skills. So what's the X factor? What's the difference? And I think the coaches were ahead of their time in pointing out that it was the the, in, the cultural factors, the, the intangibles, you know, how the team played together, their mindset, their confidence, the way they work together, they, the ability to understand their role, as Doug was saying, and being comfortable with that role and, and, and putting maybe their own individual goals below that of the team. These are all really important aspects. And uh, my father and, and his partner, Chuck Johnson, they're two team psychologists and, and, and Doug and, and his partner, uh, the assistant coach, Bill Neville, they were sitting in a room and they were talking about, well, I think this team needs to go on some kind of a shared significant life experience. Um, the first idea that came up was boot camp. And uh, so being in San Diego, they thought, great, there's a huge Marine base just up the freeway. Let's talk to the Marines. And they called up the Marines and the Marines said, uh, no, we're not going to send your, your volleyball team through boot camp. So that was out. And some other ideas got thrown around, but Outward Bound bubbled up. Outward Bound is an organization that specializes in taking people through what they call courses, you know, putting, putting a group of people through an, a wilderness course. And throughout the, the episode of the course there, they teach the skills of survival and slowly the instructors. I wanted to call them guides. And like, when I was interviewing these, these guys, uh, there were four instructors on this particular Outward bound course, they said, no, we're instructors. And that, that really was their role. They weren't there to guide as much as they were to teach their students in this course how to survive on their own. And uh, so they talked with Outward Bound. Outward Bound is also about building resilience. And there's also an individual component, helping people sort of do some soul searching and understand what's motivating them, what, what they really want to do. Uh, what's important to them because there's a whole solo experience. And, uh, and so they talked Outward Bound. Outward Bound agreed to do it. They put together a course. It was actually going to be four weeks long. And that was just going to be a little too long when the players heard that. There was just an uproar and there was a little bit of negotiation, but it ended up being three weeks. And, and, and three weeks was uh, about, um, well, 21 days is about probably 20 days longer than the players wanted it to be. Uh, 
but uh, the, the instructor said, you know, if it was just a few days long, people can sort of push through that. You know, you, there's going to be a challenge here and we want to force these players to confront this challenge together. And that's going to be part of the learning. And, mm -hmm. and that was the idea of getting out of the element, getting out of the, the beach environment. Uh, some of the players said, why don't we just go camping on Zuma beach? You know, and this is where Baywatch is filmed in Malibu. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the coaches said, well, we want to get you off the beach, not camp on the beach, you know? And mm -hmm. so it was almost the exact opposite. They picked a course in Utah in the middle of winter. It was January, 1983. It was 21 days, a hundred miles of snowshoeing. There was 70 pound packs. The players had to pack everything in and the coaches went along. My father somehow got out of it, but his partner Chuck Johnson went, you know, it was very important. The coaches were there and at least one of the team psychologists and and they did it together. And a lot of things happened on that trip. Some of the players to this day are still uncertain whether it helped the team. A lot of, some of the players think it did help the team. The coaches thought that there was definitely some improvement. But one thing you can say is when the team came back from that, from that experience, thing, they did start winning and things did change. Something really fundamental changed. And Doug was sort of hinting at it. It was just this new approach to volleyball. And it, it developed in an interaction between the coaches and players, I think it would require a high level of trust to develop something like that. It was the, became known as the American style and it was a completely new approach to volleyball. Wow. And, and that was, you know, something that happened shortly after the trip. So, yeah, so it, it was, it was a, a big, uh, courageous step by, by the coaching staff and, um, Eventually, the team won the gold medal. How much and how it contributed? Um, there's probably going to be a debate from now until the end of time about that, but that's what happened. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, let's go to commercial break and let's come back and let's talk about lessons learned from seeing this new team with the new kind of cohesion that emerged from the woods together. Let's talk about lessons learned and how that's applied to y'all's careers and what you know to be true about high-performing teams, regardless of the sport, the industry, and, and how our mid-level leaders who are listening in can also use that. While we're taking a break from this episode's hot mess, I want to talk about one of the hot messes that I know you have, and that's your meetings. Friends, one of the biggest complaints that we have in our businesses is either about the amount of meetings, how long they are, how worthless they are. And my perspective is that your meetings are your most expensive use of your team's time. That means they also need to be the most valuable use of your team's time. And instead, right now, too many of your meetings are spent with just status updates where they could have been an email or the mansplainer that talks and says, a that talks a lot, but doesn't say anything. Or the person who shows up and says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get this done. I'm sorry, I didn't get this done. So then why are you meeting? So instead of leaving your next meeting feeling deflated like Eeyore, I want you to feel like Bruce Lee and kick in some major ass. So that's why I've created this tool for you. It's called Lead Kick-Ass Meetings, and you can get it at stephaniecrevins.com forward slash lead kick-ass meetings. Get it? And it is full of templates, agendas, and icebreakers that you can use. Just copy and paste, plug and play, so that your meetings become 
an investable use of time for you and your team and your company. I chose these three areas for your meeting specifically because they're usually the tools that are most likely to go off the rails for any leader and you need something that's plug and play. You, you, you know, most folks complain that an icebreaker is too cheesy. I've got icebreakers for you that are worthwhile and create connection. Most folks complain that an agenda either doesn't exist or it's so vague, you have no idea what you're talking about. I've got agendas for you that are useful from the get-go. And I've got some templates and tools and processes that you can use. Again, just send it out to your team to make the meeting as valuable as possible. All right, my friend, that's what I have for you. I want your next meeting to be worth a million dollars, right? Um, it's costing your company a lot of time and money. It's costing you a lot of frustration. Lead kick-ass meetings. Go over to the landing page. It's just stephaniecrevins.com forward slash lead kick-ass meetings. Put in your email. You'll get that tool delivered right to your inbox. And you're going to be a meeting hero as soon as you put those into practice. All right. Now let's get back to this episode's hot mess. All right, Doug, fill us in. What was it like specifically on that Outward Bound experience? You know, I think, uh, first, I think Sean did a great job of describing this. Um, so a couple of things jump out at me years later, obviously. I, I think, number one, the players had a different perspective on uh, what I and the staff were willing to do to try to achieve our objectives. You know, I think doing things outside the boxes is, um, is a valuable thing for a leader or the head coach or whoever it is. I, I think you have to be willing to risk failure. Um, that's really important. Mm. Um, or you're, you're just sort of doing what everybody else does mm -hmm. at, at some level. So that, that kind of occurs to me. Secondly, the, 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 a huge priority for this outward bound for us was to do exactly what Sean mentioned. Everything had to be completely different from the environment that the players were comfortable in. They needed to be uncomfortable uh, in an, in an environment that they had no prior skills. And so the ranking of the status of people all of a sudden could change. It isn't who's the best volleyball player, who's the best hitter, who's the best blocker, who's the best server. Now it's somebody who's the best cook out there in the, in the snow, who can put the tents up in the best, quickest way in the snow, you know, who can fix the snowshoe that breaks because the player's foot size is a 14 and the snowshoe only works for a size 12 or something, you know, who can read the map, who can follow the compass. And we got lost, I don't know five or six times. There were days we never saw the instructors and other days when they were right there with us almost the whole time. We did some rock climbing, belaying, and a player who had really pretty low status became the best at that. And so when you're rock climbing, I'm not an expert, but you want somebody belaying you who's really good. And so a whole bunch of players gravitated toward this other player who had lower status inside the gym playing volleyball, but now is at the top. So it, it allows this group to see each other in a completely different way, in a completely different environment. 
who complains more, who doesn't complain, who simply gets their task done, who's dependent on somebody else. Who, anyway, lots of, lots of stuff went on. And I just, I, I wanted to add one other thing. So um, Sean's mentioned Bill Neville, who is a fantastic friend of mine and, you know, was assistant coach and, and incredibly important in this team's success. And he's one of the most intuitive people. Uh, and I, I use that word really specifically, um, whether it's about the game itself, when do you call a timeout? When do you make a substitution? There isn't metrics all the time that define how decisions are made. You sort of feel it and you have a sense of personalities and their emotional level is high, their energy level is high, low, et cetera. Bill's just remarkably tuned in to that kind of relationship. And so the other assistant coach that, that we haven't mentioned yet, Tony, Tony Crabb, who is really impactful also, is sort of as different as possible. And, and just all about, are we doing things in the gym that are going to specifically lead to scoring more points? Do we mm -hmm. have people... Do we have people in the right spot? And every moment that we're training volleyball, Tony's focus is, I, I want to compete. I want to play. I want to play our system. Don't talk to me about anything else. And, and so for me, the point is, I, I want people who are sort of coming at me from different directions. So if I'm the CEO or I'm the head coach, or I, I want to hear the range of opinions. and. Bill was hugely uh, an advocate for this outward bound experience, this life-changing experience, I think. Tony was neutral, not against it, but he, he didn't have much involvement. Mm -hmm. And another exercise that we did was right before the Olympic Games, we took the team out of our training environment in Southern California, went to Pullman, Washington, and mirrored the games directly. That was Tony's concept that was also really significant for the team. And Sean writes about it really well, I think, also in the book. The fact that a whole bunch of our players 40, 50 years later are still talking about the Outward Bound experience speaks volumes to me about its impact on, on that group. Um, and so it, it was significant. Yeah, I'd just like to add one more thing about that hour that Doug kind of touched on. But the, this came out in the stories as I was interviewing players and the instructors, and it, it has to do with serving others. And this is an important part of Outward Bound. Everyone had a role out there. And at the as you're going through the day, you're getting close to, uh, the players got close to putting up camp. Somebody had to put the tent up, as Doug was saying. Someone had to clear the snow out. Someone had to cook. Someone had to go gather firewood. And what that dynamic does is it forces you to serve your, your fellow brother out there mm -hmm. and you start to see each other, I think in a different way. Right. And, and Doug was touching on that. And I, and I think that new refreshed sort of respect and understanding and looking at someone for the value they provide in a, in a more holistic kind of human way and, and yes. having empathy for each other, that that translates to later on on the court or in a business, you know, when we're on a team, if we 
respect and understand each other and, and help each other in various ways, maybe even outside of work. When it comes time to deliver, to really up our game as a team, the bonds are there, you know, the relationship is there and, and the trust. And, and that's what allows you to achieve great things. And yeah. you know, in, in this case, it was innovating a whole new way of, of, of playing volleyball. And I just want to get one more quick thing in about innovation, because there's a, one of mm-hmm. my favorite quotes in the book is a story that, that Doug and, and Bill Neville tell about trying to learn from the Japanese. The Japanese program was, was a, at a high level in the 70s, late 60s and through the 70s. And so they had put out a number of these incredibly beautiful videos showing how to coach volleyball and how to bring and develop players in a way that leads to a gold medal. The Japanese won a gold medal. And it was very popular to, to copy that that technique and the coaches went to the Japanese, the American coaches went to the Japanese coaches and said, why are you doing this? Why are you putting your, all of your, your strategy and your tactics out there? And, and Matt Sidura, the coach, the Japanese coach said, well, you know, in a very Zen-like way, you know, only the Japanese can play like the Japanese. And he went on to describe how it's sort of like a Xerox copy. You know, you could try to copy what the Japanese are doing, but each copy is a, is a degrading copy of the one before it. And so as you get further away from what makes the Japanese system so special is it's, it's so ingrained in their culture and how they develop players. And, and, and so it works for them. And, and I think the lesson here in business and in, and in life is when you're leading a team, you've got to figure out what's going to bring out the strengths in your team. And that's what the American system ended up doing and what Doug and Bill and the players developed was a system that accentuated the strengths that they had this, this iconic generation of talent that grew up playing on the beach. They were quite different than the Japanese and then the, and the Soviets at the time. These are very creative players that some of them jumped off their left foot and some of them were goofy foot and some liked to come in and jump from the outside and they like to call their own plays and they like to do their own things on the court because on the beach, there are no coaches. And so they grew up without coaches. And, you know, so they were pushing back on Doug. Can we play our own? Can we call our own plays? All of these things ended up becoming a part of the system in some way. And they found their way. It took a lot of courage. One of my other favorite quotes is from Doug, where he said, I, we weren't afraid to look foolish because when they tried the American system, it didn't work right out of the bat. And, and they knew that when people looked at it, they would probably laugh or think that, that they're, they're crazy, you know, cause it was something new, but it ended up being incredible because it worked and in, in for the players and for the culture, for the American culture and what these players grew up in. And, and that's really special. Yes. That, uh, that is such a powerful lesson for everyone to learn. So thank you for bringing that up. That makes all the sense in the world to me. Shauna, I'd love to hear from you. Just the last couple questions and we'll let you all get back to changing your part of the world. You know, you started our conversation with, I wanted to tell the story of a team. Um, I know this is part of your life's work is, 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 is this teamwork, but well, let me add, also add this point here is you, you also mentioned you started this book in 2017, several years ago. And then because of beautiful serendipity that the universe always brings us. It's coming out on the heels of the global pandemic. And when, when more resilience than ever was required of so many people. And I I believe wholeheartedly this book is just a beautiful lesson in resilience, both individual and collective. What lessons have you brought into your own leadership, your own work since 
bringing this story to life? Well, a couple of them. I mean, one we've sort of hit on, but it's the importance of building relationships and trust within your team. Not everyone can go on an outward bound. Um, (laughs) I've told this story to people and people, people love it. It's not just, I don't want to talk too much about outward bound. Not everyone can do, you know, all the interventions that this team did to build that culture and trust. And this team lived and worked together for four years almost. You know, we don't have the opportunity to always do that. And it sort of got worse in the pandemic because now we're talking through Zoom and we're not meeting each other around the water cooler or going out to have drinks after work or something. That just all went away. And I think we saw that with a lot of uh, teams that over time, that's sort of, if you're not interacting in that way, the trust can sort of, uh, the bonds can dissolve a little bit. So the importance of maintaining that, the human connection, the understanding, the empathy for one another. You know, and as a leader, you can do that by taking a little time at the beginning to make sure people are doing okay, or how are how are things going on in your life? How are your kids? How is your family? You know, let's let's talk a little bit about how we can help each other through this because that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. To be a high performing team, we'll have to be there for one another. So that's one. And the other one, the, the other big lesson we haven't talked about this one as much, but I call it talent versus commitment. And there are several examples from this era of players, very high performing players. In fact, the best player in the country about 1981, 1982, as as Doug and Bill were forming this team was extremely talented. And because of that, had all kinds of opportunities to play professionally in Italy, uh, to play on the beach. And there was getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And there were, there were people that thought, well, if this player is not on the team, this, this team can't win. Mm. And, um, Doug and, and the, his coaching staff eventually had to say, well, you either, you know, you commit to this team, you know, you can go play in Italy, you can go play on the beach, but you can't also play on the national team. And it was a very, very courageous step to take. And there were people that uh, thought, Doug was crazy to make that decision. There were there were people that wanted to take the job away from him after that. There were parents that were upset. There were other players that were upset. And the team actually got better without the best player. Yes. And, and that is just amazing. Always true. <laughs> Always true. Always. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it? You know, you just, you just sometimes doubt it, but when you pull a team together and everyone sees, okay, that person's not committed. They're no longer on the team. It created an opportunity for a couple younger players to step in. There was a, a the youngest player on the team was a, a guy named Karch Karai. Maybe some of you have heard for, of, of him. He became sort of the Michael Jordan of volleyball and was voted the best player of the century and is now the head coach of the women's team and just coached the women to their first gold last summer. And uh, he wrote the foreword in the book, just an amazing, amazing uh, person. Uh, what I, I can't say enough for what he's accomplished in, in volleyball and beyond. Uh, but here was this player now kind of having a little more space to grow. A couple other players, Steve Timmons being one of them, that were sort of diamonds <clears throat> in the rough waiting to blossom. And the, the interesting thing about the players that were there, they were all still committed to the team. The team goal came first. Yes. And, and understanding that as a leader and, and some, if you can develop that, um, that esprit de corps amongst your team so that they, they place the team goal above all else. That is a key to, to being a high performing team. And certainly if you want to be at the level that this team was, you know, the gold medal elite 
you know, best in the world at what they do. Yes. Oh, fantastic point. I, like that makes me want to cry. I love it so much. Doug, bring it home for us. What is one of the top lessons that you have continued to take into your career since that amazing day back in 1984? But what what's one lesson you have taken from coaching such a high caliber, high performing team that you feel is timeless and universal for all leaders? <laughs> Boy, what a setup, what a setup. I know. I was like, oh, that was a bigger question than I was intending, but that's what uh, came out. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, empowering people is, uh, is an important lesson. Uh, I thought we did that pretty well uh, in an era when I'm not sure that term was very common. You know, we gave everybody a, uh, a significant role, um, whether they were... Um, whether that was critical on the court or off the court. Uh, so I think empowering people uh, and that leads to this group or a team deciding they're in control of and, and wanting to be in control of achieving that objective, that shared commitment. So those, those things jump out, to, out at me. I, I, I feel really good about that we did that and it's easier to describe now so many years later when coaching and leadership have sort of evolved as maybe a profession i guess or as a common topic and and we can we identify things we use the term create a great culture now i think we had a great culture without ever really talking about the culture. Uh, but every coach in the world talks about, I have to create a great culture in my gym right now. Every leader of a company wants a great culture. Um, we're in a challenging time because I think it's so much harder to do over Zoom than it is in person. But so I think we did a pretty good job of that. And, 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 and Sean, Sean made a great point. Most great teams aren't made up of all the best players. They're made up of the best team. A really good friend of mine who consulted for that team and later coached with says, we aren't necessarily the biggest, the strongest, the tallest, the whatever. We're just the best. We're going to be best at putting everybody in a meaningful role, giving them something that resonates with them and, and sort of fits their abilities. and what they can do and we make it meaningful. Um, so there you go. Mm. Thank you both so much for the time, for the labor of love that your work has been over the course of your life and for sharing your experiences here today. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. It was great to be here. Yeah. Great. I don't know about you, my fellow Gen X friend, but while we were listening to that story, especially the part about how the Japanese coaches had brought to life some videos and lessons on how to coach volleyball from their perspective, and that Japanese head coach basically said, no one can do Japanese volleyball in the way that the Japanese do. Um, I had flashes of cool runnings, right? Um, and how that Jamaican bobsled team learned to do bobsledding on their own terms. <laughs> I know it's not the same thing at all, but that's where my brain went because I have a silly sense of humor. Um, I want to break down for you the 
20% of the content that just has 80% of the impact for me today. And wherever you're listening or watching in, I want to hear your, I want to hear about your lessons too. What, what are your takeaways? Because we can learn from you as much as we can learn from my observations. All right, let's, let's, let's break down this list. First thing at the top of the, at the top of the episode, you know, we talked about bringing together talented individuals is not the same thing as creating a talented team. You, when you bring together a group of rock stars, which I know any hyper growth company is looking to do, that does not guarantee you a high performing team that is all shooting for the shared results. And that's really what the outward bound experience and several other psychological tools and several other experiences were about was bringing together a group of rock stars, a group of A players, if you will, to form a team that were committed to each other and to the shared goal. And I think the same is true in our organizations. Just because just because you hire the best and the brightest, which I feel like is on everybody's corporate recruiting page, and that's what every recruiter says they're doing is they're hiring the best. You actually don't need to hire the best. You need to hire people that are willing to be the best team players to create the best team. You don't need people that are exactly the best at their technical specialty. It's not the same thing. And you heard from Doug what was not a team, right? He had a group of amazing players together, but they weren't a team. They were forming cliques. They weren't winning at the right level, or if they were winning, it was very inconsistent and haphazard. They were all saying the right things. They wanted the gold medal, but you could feel it when the group was together. Their their heart wasn't really in it. They were just saying the right thing. And I've seen that happen in the companies that I work with too. And I'm sure you have felt that in your team. You have clicks, you have gossiping, you have backstabbing, you have inconsistent results, and you have a group that when you're together in that team meeting, they're saying all of the right things, but the follow through isn't there that matches that ambition. The motivation doesn't match the ambition and you have to have both to produce a high performing team that creates a high level of achieving of shared results. Let's keep going on this list. One of the things that we talked about with the Outward Bound experience, remember the Outward Bound folks, which is a separate organization that creates these shared lived experiences in pretty drastic circumstances. They wanted it to be four weeks and their their perspective is that's what it takes to break down the existing silos, personalities, issues within an existing team. And they finally agreed on 21 days. No. I'm not suggesting that you take your corporate team to an outward bound experience. It could be awesome. It could work for you. I have a member of my faculty who does that and she is fantastic and it works. It does fantastic things. Maybe you're not there yet, but when you call me and say, Stephanie, we need team building. Can I do it in an hour? No, you cannot. It takes several experiences and several important experiences to truly bring a team together. So one, I hope that you'll call me and say, hey, Stephanie, let's do some team building. And I hope that you are open to the perspective that to break down silos, clicks, existing uh, personalities that are disrupting the team, it takes more than a one-time gathering or it takes more than a one overnight. Um, and I hope that when you do ask me to help you with your team, uh, that you'll be open to some recommendations as to what it takes to create long lasting, sustainable results. And it's not a one-time team building um, exercise, unfortunately. This is just not how adults learn. One of the lessons that came out of 
towards the end of the Outward Bound experience was that all of the team members, they served each other. You know, they they were willing to humble themselves, humble their own goals for the sake of, of the whole goal of the team's goal, if you will. It increased their credibility. It increased trust. And I'm guessing after experience like that, trust isn't even the right word. It's something much, much deeper than that. Almost like a sense of integrity within one team unit. If you can create that because they go through something hard together, what you have are team members that see the humanity, the the value, the grace, the compassion in every other member of that team. That is really what a true team is about. And you can have that in your business just as you can have it on a sports team. I know that much to be true. Just so beautiful. And, you know, as Doug was describing the innovation, really, that that they brought to this team to create the American style. I just I love the way he said that, because I feel like a high performing team is always innovating. Now we say think out of the box, which is kind of a a business cliche, right? But they're looking to different experiences, resources, industries for inspiration to bring back to theirs, to make them even better. The same is true for a business team. They are looking outside of their industry, outside of their sector, outside of their own discipline for successful tools that they can use inside of their discipline and their business to become more successful. That is innovation. These small tweaks that you bring back to your business to make you even better that your competitors aren't thinking of because your competitors are thinking, oh, what are my competitors doing? Game changer, my friends, especially when it comes to innovation. And I love the lesson that they brought to life that, you know, with the coaches being on that experience with them, They saw how far their coaches, their leaders were willing to go to help the entire organization be successful. Their coaches were out there risking their life, being hungry, belaying on their rocks, just like they were, because they were willing to risk it all too. And as a leader, we need to be willing to risk it all too. We got to get in there. We got to roll up our sleeves. We got to be in it with our people to build trust and integrity. And when, when when you're leading, you have people actually following. Gosh, guys, so many great lessons here about innovation, growth, stepping up to the plate to be a high-performing team from a group of high-performing individuals. Those two things are not always synonymous. You as the leader have to connect the dots. I got so excited, I knocked my microphone. But you as the leader have to connect the dots between taking these A players, these rock stars, and turning them into the band, right? Like the group of people that accomplish something together. All right, my friend, if you got value from from this episode, these lessons, would you please share it with another ambitious learner who is a leader in your network? I would be very, very grateful for helping us create more pro troublemakers in this world. And now let's get off the internet. Let's get off media. Let's get back to the impactful work that really makes a difference in our business, in our lives, and in other people's lives. And I'll see you next time, my friend.